Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi folks. Before we begin, I'd just like to play a quick promo for the podcast, They Will Kill. It's a true crime podcast hosted by sisters Courtney and Sadie Eck, who are ravenous consumers of all things murder. I let them tell the rest. Hello the world. We are They Will Kill, a true crime podcast. I'm Courtney Eck. And I'm Sadie Eck. And we are sisters that want to tell you about lesser known murders. Our cases are always compelling, maybe even a little scary, with just enough banter to keep it interesting. You can find us at theywillkill.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you there. See ya. As well as that, just a reminder that if you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to support the podcast by buying the price of a pint or a cup of coffee, you can do that over at patreon.com forward slash the troubles podcast. There you'll get early release episodes as well as a companion video where I'll answer any questions that you may have. Alternatively, you can also support the podcast with a once-off donation at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Troubles Podcast. All the links are in the notes. Now, let's get on with the episode. October 5th, 1974, in the small town of Guildford, England. It was a Saturday evening and the pubs were packed full of people who were relaxing after a week spent working. The Horse and Groom was one of the more popular pubs in the town as it was rumoured to have the cheapest pints around. Amidst the jovial atmosphere, a man and a woman slipped into the pub, stayed for one drink and left. Then, a short while later, a bomb detonated that would cause absolute carnage in the pub. Four soldiers and one civilian were killed outright, with 65 others injured. Of the five people killed, four of them were teenagers. The wave of revulsion that came from what became known as the Guildford Pub bombings would set in motion one of the greatest injustices in the British judicial system, one which neither the victims of the bombings nor those accused would get any closure. This is The Troubles Podcast, a podcast which explores the violence and bloodshed that occurred in Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland and Great Britain, as multiple sides and organisations waged a conflict over the status of Northern Ireland. Belfast in 1974 was a dangerous city, Violence and bombings were an everyday occurrence, 
which went hand in hand with the poverty faced by some people. It was not a place that Jerry Conlon wanted to grow up in. His family would have been considered non-violent nationalists and his mother, Sarah, believed that religion was more important than politics. She was a cleaner in a hospital and Jerry's father, Giuseppe, was a factory worker in the Harland and Wolfe dockyards where he would spray paint on the hull of ships. Giuseppe always asked for a mask but they were never provided to the workers who were breathing in dangerous fumes every day. Jerry remembers from a young age his father coughing up blood and being in ill health. Jerry had some interactions with the RUC and British Army as a teenager and had been arrested once for breaching curfew. After working some odd jobs, Jerry then began a life of petty crime, stealing clothes and electrical items from shops before selling them on the street. But his parents were worried about him and were afraid that he could either get drawn into the IRA or arrested by British soldiers and accused of being in the IRA. For that reason, they sent him over to London. But he missed his family and friends and came home soon after and continued with petty theft and soon became known in the area for being a thief. It was around here he joined the provisional IRA, hoping that it might bring him into line, but he was kicked out shortly after, after he was caught stealing from a pub. For the most part, the IRA wanted to avoid having petty criminals in their ranks. Jerry was only 20 years old in 1974 when he moved over to London to get away from the violence taking place in Northern Ireland. He knew that there was work in England and money to be made. He initially moved to Southampton where he met up with a friend from Belfast by the name of Paul Hill and after spending some time there, the two got bored of the small social scene and decided to move up to London. Once in London, Hill and Conlon worked on construction sites. Conlon also continued with petty crime and there was one instance where he broke into the apartment of a prostitute and stole £750. His only real focus in life was having fun and making money. It was around this time that the IRA was about to open up a new chapter in their bombing campaign. They began to realise that the British Army would not be leaving Northern Ireland anytime soon and were gaining ground against them. They began to look overseas to mainland England. Prior to this point, they had staged a few attacks in England against economic centres or soldiers' barracks. But this would be the first time that they would plant a bomb in a civilian pub and not give any warning or any chance for the people to escape. They believed that one bomb in England would bring more media attention to their cause than the hundreds that had already gone off in Northern Ireland. It was October the 5th in 1974 in Guildford, which is a small town about one hour away from London. Carol James was there that night celebrating her 19th birthday with her friends and parents. The song Kung Fu Fighting was playing on the jukebox and there was a very jovial atmosphere in the pub as the timer and the bomb ticked down. Here's Carol remembering the night. It was my 19th birthday, so I'd gone out to celebrate. My parents had come to pick me up about 7 o'clock. We went to the pub and stayed for most of the evening. At around 7pm in the evening, IRA member Brendan Dowd and a woman entered the horse and groom pub and had a quiet drink. The horse and groom was a popular pub for British soldiers as there was an army base nearby. I didn't talk to them. Just looked like a normal couple having a drink. The two pretended to be a couple, kissing and holding hands, and no one paid any attention to them. At 8pm they left, with the woman hiding her handbag under her chair. 
Inside the handbag was a six-pound bomb with a 40-minute timer. In the midst of this busy atmosphere, the bomb exploded. What I do remember is coming round, I still have my eyes shut, and not being able to understand why everyone was screaming just because I'd fainted. I just thought I'd fainted. My mum and dad were still in the pub. I couldn't find them anywhere. I saw people being taken out and put into the ambulance. I thought too much. Five people were killed outright, and 50 others were maimed by the shrapnel which had been placed inside the bombs. A reporter described the scene. Quote, People were running, shouting and screaming. Many of them were young girls, and many were clutching bleeding heads. There was blood everywhere. The entire front of the horse and groom was blown out. There was rubble everywhere, glass, bricks, timber. People were scrabbling amongst the debris, trying to pull people out of the mess. It was panic and chaos. After the bomb went off, a number of other pubs in Guildford were evacuated. At nine o'clock, a second bomb detonated at the Seven Stars pub, another pub which was frequented by British soldiers. Luckily, the pub had been evacuated and there were no fatalities. This bombing attack on young people who were just enjoying a night out deeply shocked the British people, and a sense of anger and a desire for justice swept across the country. Utter devastation and harmless drinkers blown to pieces. Every adult in the country knew what it was like to drink in a public bar. People felt very hysterical about it and, and felt glad that these bastards had been nailed. They had no sense that the wrong people had been nailed. It was attacks such as this and the Woolwich pub bombing which allowed the British government to push through the Prevention of Terrorism Act 1974 which allowed the British police to detain those suspected of terrorist attacks for eight days without being charged. These eight days would prove pivotal for what was to come. Jerry was still in London around the time of the bombing, and he had heard that the IRA had attacked a pub somewhere near London, but he wasn't too concerned with the news, considering bombings were a daily occurrence back in Northern Ireland. As well as drinking, he also liked to take recreational drugs. After a particularly bad acid trip, Jerry came to the realisation that he wanted to come home, so he packed up his gear and he moved home to Belfast. He was home a few weeks when he saw on the news that his friend Paul had been picked up by the police investigating the bombing. He initially laughed it off, thinking that they would release him once they realised that Paul had nothing to do with it and then Jerry went to bed. But when there was a knock at his door at half five the following morning, things got more serious. Jerry opened his door to the RUC who arrested him on the spot. He was still completely oblivious as to what was going on. After a few hours of extreme interrogation, the detectives brought out a signed confession from Paul Hill that mentioned that Jerry was involved in the bombing in Guildford. This made no sense to Jerry, but it was enough for him to be brought out of Northern Ireland and into England for more interrogation. Jerry remembers the last thing that the detective in Northern Ireland said to him before he left. Quote, Conlon, they're going to put you away for so many years that the next time you see Belfast, they'll be running day trips to the moon. 
Jerry arrived in England where he was met with some very angry police officers and interrogators. He was then subjected to physical and psychological torture. Here's Jerry himself describing what happened when he arrived at the police station. And they marched me around the, the back of the police station and there was a gauntlet of about 15 policemen on each side. And as I was walking through, they were spitting on me and slapping me and punching me. And this is their language, not my language. They were calling me a dirty, stinking, murdering Irish bastard, an IRA fucking bomber, every name on their son. My mother was an IRA whore. My sisters were IRA whores. My father was an IRA bastard. And they took me and they marched me up to the death sergeant's desk, and then they formed a semicircle around me. They stripped me naked and they spat upon me. And the death sergeant told him to take me out of their sight. Officers threatened to kill Jerry's family, saying they knew where his mother and sister worked. As the police could now hold him for eight days, Jerry felt that there was no end to the beatings and interrogations, and worried about his family. When a confession was put out in front of him, Jerry signed it. Jerry went on to describe what it was like after days of these interrogations. Quote, In my cell, I could suddenly see myself and what I was doing, maybe for the first time. I wanted to please the police just so I wouldn't be beaten anymore, screamed at, abused with dirty names. I actually wanted to please these bastards. I was in a terrible state of confusion and fear. I was crying. I was breaking down and falling apart. And all I wanted to do was please these policemen, to please them and to get away from them. In the end, four people were accused of the bombings at Guildford. They were Jerry Conlon, Paul Hill, Patrick Armstrong and Patrick's English girlfriend, Carol Richardson. These four went on to become known as the Guildford Four. It would be another year before they were formally sentenced, but during that time the IRA continued their bombing campaign in England, which further fuelled the anti-Irish sentiment in Great Britain. Then, on the 21st of November, the IRA carried out the Birmingham pub bombings, which killed 21 civilians and was covered in season one of the podcast. As a result of this bombing, and the Guildford pub bombings, there was a massive anti-Irish sentiment in England, and the English people wanted justice. The Guildford Four's trial was a media circus, and the four jumbled confessions became the base for the prosecution's case. There really wasn't much other evidence connecting them to the case, apart from them being in London when the crime was carried out. And remember, Guildford is about an hour away from London. In fact, Jerry Conlon claimed that he had an alibi on the night, claiming that he was talking with a homeless man called Charles Burke when the bombing occurred, but this couldn't be proved. All four were handed down lengthy prison sentences of at least 30 years or more. The presiding judge, Justice Donaldson, said while sentencing that he regretted that the four had not been charged with treason, which had a mandatory penalty of hanging. But one can't talk about the Guildford Four without also talking about the Maguire Seven, and this is where the story takes a very bizarre turn. Anne and Patrick Maguire had lived in London since the 1950s. Jerry Conlon's father, Giuseppe, was a brother-in-law of Anne, and upon hearing of Jerry's arrest, Giuseppe flew over to London to help his son mount a legal defence. He was staying with Anne and her family as he began to look for a lawyer for Jerry. When Paul Hill was arrested, he went on to say that he and Jerry stayed in Anne's house for a few days and that Anne had taught him how to make bombs. That statement, accompanied by Jerry's forced confession, was enough for the police to believe that the Maguire family had something to do with the bombing. 
the police believed that Anne and her family were sleeper agents of the IRA, who had been living in the UK for 20 years and had just recently activated to make bombs for the IRA. Anne's daughter, Anne-Marie, was just seven at the time and remembers what happened when the police came knocking at her door. 44 years and I can remember that like it was yesterday. I actually opened the door to them. The dogs freaked the life out of me. A lot of shouting, a lot of police running through my house. I heard my mum screaming. I couldn't get to her, she was in the kitchen. And it was really, really scary, really scary. On December 3rd, 1974, the British police raided Anne's house and seven people were arrested. They were Anne, her husband Patrick, their two sons, 14-year-old Patrick and 17-year-old Vincent, Sean Smith, who was Anne's brother, Patrick O'Neill, who was a family friend, and Giuseppe, who was Jerry's father. The police accused Anne of being the ringleader of the group. Here's Anne speaking about the police accusations. What are you talking about? I said, you're saying that I make bombs here in my children's home? I said, do you know that plug there? I said, I couldn't even put a fuse in that plug. Never mind making bombs. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. The media went on to dub Anne's house as Auntie Annie's Bomb Factory, which is a title that stuck. The investigation had very little proof, except for that some of the family members' hands tested positive as having traces of nitroglycerin on them, which is used in bomb making. These tests have since been ruled as obsolete and unreliable. No trace of explosives were ever found in Anne's house. Patrick Maguire, who was just 13 at the time, describes his interrogation. And he's come in, and he's come straight over to me, hands on the table, and he's gone, right, I'm going to ask you again, where'd you get the fucking bombs? As soon as I said, I've told you, you've made a mistake. At the end of that sentence, I was hit so hard. 
that I, I actually gripped the table and I answered him. I said, you've made a mistake. And as I'm answering him, he's walking around me. And I got it in the back of the head. Punched? Yes. I got punched so hard every single time. And I, I, I this is not exaggerating, the table, there was a little puddle of my tears. I swear to God, there was a little, and I thought I was going to get in trouble for that. As a result of these accusations, they were all given fairly hefty sentences. The two children were given four and five year sentences. Anne and her husband were given 14 years. Then Sean, Patrick and Giuseppe were all sentenced to 12 years behind bars. All of these sentences stem from a case based on two confessions and the result of the nitroglycerin tests. The family went on to serve out the entirety of their sentences. Some of them have never been able to forgive Jerry and Paul for what they said in their forced confessions. Anne-Marie was just seven when her mother was taken away from her for 12 years. I hated Jerry Conlon and I hated Paul Hill to the point that, again, if I could have, I'd have killed them. I had no sympathy for them. The fact that they were in prison too, to me, was justly right. You know, you've put my family in prison. They all had a difficult time in prison and Patrick describes how he was beaten during that period. Just beat me. Proper beat me. Punches. Just hitting me and hitting me. And this went on for 16 months. All the time. Jerry's father, Giuseppe, recalled Detective Wally Simmons saying to him after he asked about the welfare of his son, quote, You want to know about your son? Well, he's going to get 30 years. We'll see to it that you die in jail. I'll see you later. Unfortunately for Giuseppe, this quote proved to be true. Due to his ill health from the shipyard, he'd been living with tuberculosis for a number of years, and four years into his sentence, Giuseppe's health deteriorated rapidly, and he passed away in 1980 at the age of 56. Shortly before he died, Jerry was able to visit him on compassionate grounds, and when Giuseppe saw his son, he took off his oxygen mask and he said to Jerry, quote, When I die, I don't want you attacking no screws. I want you to start clearing your name. My debt's going to clear your name, and when you get your name cleared, you clear mine. In a bittersweet twist of fate, one day after Giuseppe died, Jerry's mother received a letter stating that he was to be released from the prison on compassionate grounds because he was so sick during his term. The rest of the Maguire Seven served out their sentences and were released. Their names weren't cleared until 2004 when Prime Minister Tony Blair issued an apology. Back to the Guildford Four. They continued to serve out their sentences while lobbying and appealing for justice. These appeals were constantly refused by the courts. Pressure increased in 1977 with the capture of the Balcombe Street Gang, who were an active service unit of the IRA operating in Britain. They were the ones who were responsible for a number of bombings, including the bombing at Guildford. Their members were captured in 1977, and as gang member Joe O'Connell was speaking from the dock during his trial, he appealed for clemency for the Guildford Four. He said, quote, We have recognised this court to the extent that we have instructed our lawyers to draw the attention of the court to the fact that four totally innocent people, Carol Richardson, Jerry Conlon, Paul Hill and Paddy Armstrong, 
are serving massive sentences for three bombings, two in Guildford and one in Woolwich, which three of us and another man, now imprisoned, have admitted that we did. This admission fell on deaf ears, and in a bizarre turn of events, Joe and the others who stood trial actually instructed their defence counsel not to prove their innocence, but to prove their guilt regarding the Guildford bombing, so as to show that the Guildford 4 and Maguire 7 had nothing to do with it. Despite this, the Guildford 4's appeals were not held, and they continued to serve their sentences. But in 1989, things had changed. There had been some revealing documentaries broadcast out to the British public, bringing uncertainty to the forefront regarding the Guildford Four. A number of lawyers, including human rights solicitor Gareth Pearce and senior barrister Lord Gifford, had taken on the case pro bono, and it soon began to become apparent that the next appeal would be successful. So much so that Jerry's mother and two sisters were told to fly over from Belfast to attend. They didn't have the money to fly over to London for his appeal, but ITN News offered to fly her and her family over on a private plane in exchange for an interview with Jerry upon being released. They immediately accepted and flew over for his appeal in October 1989. During the appeal, detectives investigating the case of the Guildford Four found a number of discrepancies. Typed notes had been heavily edited. It also appeared that some of the notes were handwritten after the interviews were conducted and not during. The most damning piece of evidence that Gareth found was that the prosecution actually had found and interviewed the man, Charles Burke, that Jerry had claimed was his alibi. But the prosecution deliberately withheld this during the original trial. The appeal took place on the 19th of October 1989. Someone had bought clothes for Paul and Jerry, but Paddy Armstrong had to wear the same clothes that he was arrested in 15 years earlier, flared jeans and three-inch platform shoes. The appeal was short, and within no time the Guildford Four were released, having their convictions quashed. Upon hearing the news, Jerry Conlon stood up and stormed out of the courthouse. He met the media outside, and with his sisters holding both of his hands, he made an impassioned speech. I've been in prison 15 years for something I didn't do, for something I didn't know anything about. Totally innocent man, I watched my father die in a British prison for something he didn't do. He is innocent, the Maguires is innocent. Let's hope that Birmingham is innocent! Upon his release from prison, Jerry's life was not easy. In fact, he was quoted as saying that sometimes he wished he was still in prison. Shortly after leaving prison, Jerry embarked on a trip to the USA to meet some politicians and raise awareness about the troubles in Northern Ireland. In particular, Jerry advocated for the release of the Birmingham Six who were still incarcerated by this stage and were covered in season one of the podcast. Jerry had grown quite close to one of the six, Patty Hill, and the two had a deep friendship. As an apology to Jerry for his wrongful conviction, the British government began issuing compensation payments that would eventually amount to around £546,000. Jerry wasn't impressed with this, saying, quote, They gave me £546,000 for taking me, torturing and framing me, taking my father, torturing him and having him in prison then leaving me sinking in the quicksand of my own nightmares giving money to victims of miscarriages of justice is like giving them a bottle of whiskey and a revolver you might as well say here's the money now go and kill yourself Jerry tried to settle down in Belfast but it was a city that was completely torn up by sectarianism and he was a pacifist and wanted nothing to do with violence 
so he ended up moving to London and living with the human rights solicitor Gareth Pierce and her husband. This was probably a good move for Jerry, as he'd been living a wild life since leaving prison, taking an excessive amount of alcohol and drugs. He really didn't know how to fit into normal life. He went on to write an autobiography titled Proved Innocent. It went on to be made into a blockbuster film called In the Name of the Father. I would highly recommend the movie. It tells the story very well, though it does take some liberties, having Giuseppe and Jerry as cellmates, which didn't actually happen. But generally its depiction of the circumstances is quite good. Paul Hill went on to marry Courtney Kennedy, whose father was the politician Robert Kennedy. They had a daughter together, Saoirse, before separating in 2006. Saoirse passed away in 2019 at the age of 22. Paddy Armstrong had similar problems as Jerry with alcohol after his release, but eventually got married and settled down in Dublin and co-wrote a book about life after imprisonment called Life After Life, which was released in 2017. Carol Richardson kept out of the public eye after being released. She got married and had a child, and she eventually passed away in 2012 at the age of 55. Jerry continued to travel the world, telling his story and campaigning against injustices, before passing away in 2014 after a battle with lung cancer at the age of 60. His family issued a statement, which I'll finish this episode with. He brought life, love, intelligence, wit and strength to our family through its darkest hours. He helped us to survive what we were not meant to survive. We recognise that what he achieved by fighting for justice for us had a far, far greater importance. It forced the world's closed eyes to be opened to injustice. It forced unimaginable wickedness to be acknowledged. We believe it changed the course of history. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.